Well, good morning to you again. Our, the sermon this morning is on Psalm 119. So I hope you brought lunch. Some of you wondered how I was going to do this. Um, the sermon this morning will be a sort of general flyover of the 119th Psalm, bringing to your attention some things that I thought were especially important as I read through it myself. Um, but for, for us to start with a particular text, we are going to begin with, um, I, I suppose it's about, it is about halfway through the psalm in verse 89, which is just not something you hear often, is it? Uh, beginning in verse 89, probably under the word Lamed in your Bibles, we'll talk about that more in a moment. But hear these words, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day for all things are your servants. Wow. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me. For I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. This is the word of the Lord. It is perfect. It is holy. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is our guide in all things. And so again we say, thanks be to God. So Psalm 119, if I were to ask you what, did you, what do you know about Psalm 119, most of you would probably say, well, I know it's really big. It is long. It is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is about as long as the entire book of Ruth or the book of Philippians. One commentator has observed that Psalm 119, for most of us, is like a long drive down the interstate. When you, when you drove down the interstate, there might have been plenty of lovely scenery, but what you mostly remember is how long the drive took. <laughs> what some of you also know is that it's kind of repetitive. Uh, I mean, okay, Brian, you said Psalm 119 is as long as the book of Ruth. Okay, that's interesting, but, you know, at least Ruth tells an engaging story, right? And the, the third thing that many people know about Psalm 119 is it's an acrostic poem, it's an acrostic poem. What that means is that the 119th Psalm is divided or subdivided, you might say, into sections, and each section features a particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if you work through Psalm 119, you're going to see Aleph, Bet, Gimel, and so on. And what's happening there is that at the start of each line in Hebrew is that letter. So, so each, I mean, maybe the best way to say it, though this is not quite accurate, the, the start of each sentence in that chunk begins with that letter in Hebrew, okay? So it, it doesn't really work when we translate it over to English, even though that might be a cool thing about it. It, it kind of gets quite literally like lost in translation. Uh, and so in Hebrew, each verse, more or less, in a section starts with the same letter. Now what that should show you, I note in passing, is that this psalm is a work of poetic and literary brilliance. The psalmist is like a craftsman working with his words. And, and that itself should, should educate us as to one of the ways, one of the ways that, that God works. We tend to think, I think sometimes, that, that for words 
to be spiritually authentic, they have to kind of gush out of us in the moment without any preparation or study beforehand. That, that whatever sort of gushes out in the unguarded moments is real authentic spirituality, and whatever is carefully crafted might be valuable for study, but sometimes seems less spiritual to us. But the biblical authors didn't think that way. You, you can have intensely passionate, intensely spiritual and profitable thoughts poured over for a long time, even maybe with many careful revisions. The fourth thing that many of you probably know is that it is a psalm about the Word of God. It is Scripture discussing Scripture. And some form of God's Word is mentioned in almost every single one of the 176 verses. We find different terminology is used. We hear the revelation of God called His Word, His law, His commandment, His precept, His testimony, statute, judgment, uh, direction, way that that I walk in, light for the path, all these kinds of different things. But there is one thing that I, I think often gets missed. Most of us know that the psalm is about God's Word. But if I were to ask you, what is the most common terminology in this psalm that is what is the the category of word that shows up the most often it would not be scripture or a word about scripture when you when you hear it you're probably going to roll your eyes and think it was kind of a trap Uh, the most frequent language in psalm 119 are the first and second personal pronouns i me mine you yours, and so on. The first three verses, if you, have, if you have your Bible open to Psalm 119, the first three verses talk about people in general. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong and walk in His ways. And then with verse 3, there's this shift Oh, excuse me, verse 4. But uh, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And from there on out, it's you and yours. And it's I, your servant. I desire, I need. It was good for me for you to do and so on. Here's the point. Psalm 119 is not just a beautiful, complex, acrostic song, poem. It is that. It's not just Scripture talking about Scripture, though it is that. It's not just the longest chapter in the Bible, though it is that. It is also the longest personal prayer in the Bible. The longest prayer directed from from I, me, to, to God, you, your, and so on. So what if Psalm 119 is not so much about what we normally think that it's about? That is, what if Psalm 119 is not so much about having a quiet time or having a devotional time or how you should think about God's Word, even though I think to some extent it can be all of those things, but I'm saying what if the main thing we're supposed to see in Psalm 119 is a picture of how you start talking to God once God's Word gets inside your heart? You might say, Well, yeah, that's certainly... In there is an exhortation to Bible study. Yes, but what if the bigger picture is that this is how a Bible-saturated heart talks? Okay? Now, that might seem like a really sort of fine distinction, but I think it's really important. Follow with me as we go. I'm hoping to convince you of it. 
So what you're going to notice in this psalm, if you read through it, which again, you can do this afternoon. It won't take you terribly long. It just won't, uh, it'll just be, uh, uh, you know, longer than reading just one chapter of the Bible normally, like you might do. What we find here in this psalm, and what we found in so many other psalms as well in this series, is that our God is a God who invites honest speech. Honest speech. David Pallison, who I who I leaned on pretty heavily for this sermon. I, he's written, I think, one of the best sort of summaries of what Psalm 119 is about. This is what he had to say. He said, Psalm 119 is torrential, not topical. It's relentless, not repetitive. It's personal, not propositional. Lord, You spoke. You acted. I need You. Make me into what You say I should be. Do what You say You'll do. I love You. Yes, the form of Psalm 119 is regular, but why this tight discipline of Aleph to Tau, that's the Hebrew alphabet, like we would say A to Z. The arithmetic regularities that pattern the vocabulary, the unvarying reference back to Scripture. Why? These provide the cast iron crucible that contains, purifies, channels, and pours forth molten living gold. Psalm 119 is the thoughtful outcry that rises when real life meets real God. You can just leave that up there for a minute. When real life meets real God. You see, Psalm 119 is honest, but it's not mainly consumed with just honesty about the self. It, it's, in the sense of, it's not simply about trusting every impulse that fires off in our hearts. Rather, this is, this is a, a reverent honesty before God about the reality of life and the work of His Word in the life of, of a person who's following after God. There are at least four things I want to tend to this morning to talk to you about uh, what, what we are taught in Psalm 119. And it has to do with a heart shaped by God's Word. So the four things, here they are. First, I want to talk to you a little bit uh, about the, how the Word-shaped heart knows God. Second, the word-shaped heart knows God's words. Third, the word-shaped heart asks for help. And fourth, the word-shaped heart confesses God's point of view. Okay? So we'll start with the first one. The word-shaped heart knows God. In, in, in other words, within Psalm 119, what you're going to see are these frequent confessions of, of what God is like. So for instance, in verse 90, let's go there now. Verse 90. The psalmist confesses that God is the one who established the earth. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. Okay, We uh, sang about this recently, I believe, and we sang Psalm 124 together, which, which closes with this confession that the Lord who made heaven and earth is our helper. Okay, And we just sang it in Psalm 134, that the Lord who made heaven and earth is the one who blesses us from Zion. And so the Lord who made heaven and earth, the Lord who made everything, is the one to whom we pray, which is a reminder that He made everything, and so that means He has control over everything He made. Uh, verse 151 speaks of the nearness of God. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Also talks about how the Lord rebukes the arrogant. Verse 21. Verse 21, where we read, uh, You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones, who wander from your commandments. Okay? So there is, we learn that there is rebuke for people who arrogantly discard what God has said and in favor pursue what 
Well, what they tell themselves. More on that in a moment. Uh, then next we have verse 68 in my list here. One of my favorite verses in the whole psalm, uh, which is where we read, You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. I would say at least the first part of that verse, all of you should memorize and be able to confess it in the midst of every affliction. You are good and you do good. That's a very simple prayer that you can learn to pray in the midst of whatever comes your way in life. Verse 32, you will enlarge my heart. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. You know what that's saying there? The psalmist is saying, I'm going to, to run, which has a kind of a, 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 a delight and willingness, not just I'm going to sort of sort of uh, slavishly slump along and walk and slowly and uh, uh, diligently but grumpily in the ways of your commandments. I'm going to run when you, you enable my heart to rejoice in them. You give me a bigger heart to love your word more and more. It's the very thing we just asked God for in the, in the pastoral prayer a moment ago, right? Love of God's own words and love of God himself. So, to say Psalm 119 is about Scripture, that's true. That is the microwave oven version. If you slow cook this thing, you're going to find a lot of fuel for perseverance in the midst of affliction. And additionally, and I'm going to go back to Pallison once more, the psalm, I think, critiques the way we talk about ourselves. The way we talk about ourselves. Can you go to the quotation, please? Uh, so Pallison, who, by the way, is a... Is a uh, He's, he's a counselor, and he's, he's a, I think he's done work as a therapist as well. Uh, and so counseling is kind of his, his specialty in, in psychology and therapy. And so he points out entire systems of counseling are built around analyzing and then reconstructing your self-talk so that you'll be happier and more productive. But Psalm 119 gets you out of the monologue business entirely, right? pulls you out of the, the talking to yourself. It gets you about the business of a living dialogue with the person whose opinion finally matters. The problem with self-talk, whether negative or positive, whether irrational or rational, is that we aren't talking to anyone but ourselves. The stream of consciousness is unconscious of the one with whom we have to do. A stream of conversation ought to be taking place, but we repress conscious awareness of someone who so threatens our self-fascination. Right? We, we, we suppress the reminders of someone who threatens our self-fascination. This is why we must know God. Not just know His words, but know Him. And so the word-shaped heart knows God. Next, the word-shaped heart knows God's words. Now, it is good for us to learn the Word of God because we often exist in a state of functional atheism. That is, it's not that we deny God's existence, but we build our life around patterns and habits that tend to ignore God's existence. Okay, And Psalm 119 is not the way you talk uh, when you are kind of avoiding reminders of, of God's existence. It's also not the way you talk in some sort of dreamy, spiritual state when you are sort of uh, you feel spiritually elevated so now I'm going to talk spiritual uh, because I feel really inspired or I, I sang a real lovely song and, and and now I'm just in kind of this spiritual euphoria so now I'm going to talk like uh, like like the psalmist does rather Psalm 119 is the way you talk when you wake up 
Psalm 119 is the way you talk when you wake up to the real world that is governed by this God that's given us His Word. Psalm 119 is sung by a man whose life is saturated by the words of God so much that he can say, I keep your word. Verse 17. He says, I uh, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Right? That, that he, he is angled toward keeping the words of God. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. Okay? So keeping God's word, that means obedience to commandments, right? Well, okay. Yeah. How do you keep the sixth commandment? Okay. Uh, by not murdering. Right? <laughs> by not hating my brother, as, as Jesus says. Also part of keeping the sixth commandment. All right. So that's keeping the sixth commandment. We've got that down at least in terms of understanding it. But how do you keep, how do you keep in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth? How do you keep that? Well, by believing it, right? By believing it, by confessing it, by praising the God who made all things, the Lord of heaven and earth. By wondering at a thunderstorm. By being in awe of flowers and food that springs up from the ground. By delighting in a goldfish or a golden retriever. And by remembering your hands fashioned me and I am yours. But what about God's law? Right? This psalm has a lot to say about God's laws. And we tend to think of God's laws only as the, let, let's put it this way, only as the, the cold, hard, and fast commands. Okay? We forget, for example, I think that the, that the law of Moses, the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, those first five books, include statements like uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, when, when, when a God like that gives commandments, what He is doing is spelling out how to be like Him. That's what He's doing. In the New Covenant then, Jesus our Savior lives a perfect life. I know you know that intellectually, but what that means, first of all, is that he did what all of us fail to do. We imitate our father Adam. We imitate the first Adam so often in not doing what we are meant to do. That's what we confessed in the prayer of confession earlier this morning. And Jesus was the clearest expression of the love of God and the law of God. Every second of his life was lived in total obedience to the law of God. And what that resulted in was a rather buttoned up and boring, quiet sort of fellow. It's funny, isn't it? No, that's ridiculous. Every second of Jesus' life was lived in total obedience to God's law. And what you get from that, what you see from that, the result is a life lived that is full of love and joy and wisdom. If Jesus is constantly living in obedience to God, then all his neighbor love, all his good works, all of his restorative ministry, all of his sacrificial death on the cross, all of it was an expression of love forever teaching us that God's ways, living in God's ways, and loving God and loving neighbor are caught up together. So divinely intertwined that they cannot be separated. And so our God writes this law of love on our hearts. 
The Holy Spirit comes to live in us when we believe, and therefore we learn to love, which is nothing more or less than all of this law lived out and fulfilled. Do you see how the psalmist can sing, Oh, how I love your law. Why wouldn't he? Next, the word-shaped heart asks for help. It might interest you to know that there are 22 stanzas in this psalm, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Every single one of them asks for help at some point. The psalmist talks to God about two afflictions. Two afflictions. And I bet if I just said, can you guess what they are? That, that with maybe, but I, I bet most of you had figured out pretty fast. The two afflictions, because they're the two afflictions that confront you and I every day. He talks about, number one, his own sin. Okay? His own sin. Uh, verse 10, for example. Do we have that one? Yeah, verse 10. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Right? So let me not wander away. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Let me not wander. So he talks about his own sin. And then number two, he talks about <laughs> y'all's sin, <laughs> their sin. The, the sin. There's sin inside of me and there's sin outside of me, right? Uh, he talks about the wicked, for example. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 119. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. Notice that connection. So this is a good reminder to us. Here's what I mean. Sometimes we can get so focused on the sin we see around us, on the sin that's outside of us, whether it's the sin in our family that we're living with, or the sin we see on TV or on social media, and we just become constant scolds. Whether we're mad about the sexual confusion that surrounds our culture, or the broken families that fill up our neighborhoods, or the particular ways that men sin, or the particular ways that women sin, or the particular ways that young people sin, the particular ways that millennials or Generation X sins, or Generation Z sins, or the particular way that boomers sin. All the complaints are about the sin out there. Or other times we can feel really pious and humble to only talk about our own sins and never to condemn the wickedness out there. Or that any condemnation of the wickedness out there has to be buffeted by, but really, who am I to condemn? But really, am I any better? But really, but really, but really, but really. I would simply offer you that's not how the psalmist sings. He does sing about both, but it's because both are monstrous and real, not because one blunts the other or qualifies the other. So back to the point, the word-shaped heart asks for help because there's sin in here and there's sin out there, and I need help. So his own sin afflicts him to the point where he wonders, will God leave me? Do you remember from a moment ago? Uh, Do not utterly forsake me was the language. But the sin out there also bothers him, right? The sin in here bothers him and the sin out there bothers him. And I would just, I mean, I would want both of those things to be true for all of you, right? That the sin in here bothers you and that the sin out there bothers you. And when he's talking about the external sin, I essentially what he's saying, I think, is so familiar to, to all of us. Essentially saying, I know your word says you see. I know your word says you care. That's true, right? Do you struggle with this? How can God be good in the midst of a, of a messed up world? 
How can he hear and see and not act right now to deal with the evil that's here right now and in this way? Why does he not deal with it in this way immediately? So you have have basically two choices as to what to do with that question. Number one is you can let it consume you. Maybe even decide there's no answer for it. You can despise God for allowing sin to really be this bad, really be this corrupting, really be this destructive, really be this painful. And you can let the discomfort of unresolved questions and unacquired knowledge, why, why is it this way, uh, to be your destruction. I know some people who, maybe what you can say about them positively is maybe they have, say, great stamina, great endurance, even great physical strength. They're, they're, they can take a lot of punishment and keep going. But if they're given a, an intellectual question that they can't answer, and figure out to the uttermost. They just rage. Which, let's be honest, is a kind of pride. It it feels like humility, or maybe just like having an adventurous spirit of investigating it and digging everything out to find the real truth underneath it all. But being unable to live with unanswered questions without them absolutely consuming you is not intellectual honesty. It's It's a weakness of spirit. Because, I mean, let's be honest, we, what's been true of us since the garden is that we want to be God. We want to have all the answers. We want to have everything all figured out. And our pride is greatly offended when we are asked to live with a question that doesn't have a perfect answer that makes all the pesky, nagging doubts and discomforts vanish in an instant. So, as I said, you have two choices. Be consumed or take it to God Himself. You see, there's a big difference between why does God do this and God, my God, why have you done this? Big difference between those two statements. Why does God do this? It's like a third person abstraction. And God, my God, why have you done this? Almost everybody is asked, why has God done X? Not everyone has brought it to God Himself and cried out. In verses 81 to 88 in the psalm, it's right about the middle of the psalm, actually. It's interesting that the, if you like, the the, the centerpiece of the psalm, the central point, almost like the uh, uh, the fulcrum on which the whole thing turns, is is a lament. The psalmist cries out, My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? I've become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? He talks about the suffering at the hands of wicked men. The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They've almost made an end of me on earth, but I've not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. So you have this crying out to God in the middle of the psalm. And the very next section, which at the end of the sermon is the section we're going to sing, he moves right into forever, O Lord. 
Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth and it stands fast. So you heard in the previous portion, you heard chaos, chaos, what's happening. And now the Lord is the one who's firmly fixed everything. By your appointment, they stand this day for all things are your servants. That's how you need to pray. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts for by them you have given me life. I am yours Save me, for I have sought your precepts. Martin Luther said that that verse was one of the things that steadied him through a lot of the storms in his own life. Just repeating, I am yours, save me. This is the direction a lot of the Psalms give us, right? Sort of gut-wrenching honesty that goes somewhere. Real grief and lament that moves upward in a, in a direction to look at the heavens, to look at God and, and cry out for help. And so that is my invitation to you if you're in the midst of affliction is, have you cried out to God for help? Or have you simply analyzed what He might be up to? Finally, the fourth point is the word-shaped heart confesses God's point of view. There's a repeated word of confidence. Uh, and I don't mean a, a, a particular single word. I mean a way of talking. Uh, a, a, a confidence that you can detect throughout the psalm that almost makes you want to accuse the psalmist of being proud. So let's, let's look at verse 129. Verse 129, he says, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Right? And you almost want to be like, Oh, really? <laughs> Do, do you really? I mean, wow, that's, that's quite the statement to make. Let's look at verses uh, 121. Verse 121, I have done what is just and right. Again, that's really not the way that we talk. I do your command. Verse, verse 67, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Wow. And finally, verse 93, he says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you've given me life. What a claim to make. These are, these are incredible claims, are they not? And this feels a far cry from all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's something that seems a bit more humble about that, a bit more consistent. It feels a far cry from Romans 3, Verses 10 through 12. You remember where, where Paul says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Which, if you know what Paul's doing there, all that is, it's quotations from different Psalms. Right? So, likely Paul would have grown up singing them. And so he's grabbing, it's almost like if you were to grab lines from different hymns that you've grown up singing. That's what he's doing here. He's grabbing lines from different psalms to make, a, to make a sort of united confession. So my point is, all of this is in the psalms. You know what else is in the psalms? Psalm 119, which has kind of a different, more confident tone to it. We are not used to talking this way. I would submit to you it's because we've forgotten to sing this way. But God wants us to be a people who can actually confess, we keep your word, O Lord which is not a claim of perfection. It really matters how you read it, doesn't it? It's not a claim of perfection or perfect consistency. It is a claim of life orientation. And perhaps more importantly, a confession of joy. So let me explain, or, or attempt an explanation anyway. If, if my wife prepares a fantastic dinner for us, as she has done on numerous occasions, and then after we eat it, I said, 
I've eaten everything you set before me. Oh, it was good. I didn't let one single crumb go to waste. Her response would probably not be, well, you're a bit of a braggart, aren't you? I'm pretty sure, Brian, you are not as perfect as you claim. Maybe I did see a crumb left on that plate that you missed. That would be absurd. But let's go back to verse 129, shall we? Verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Use the example that I just gave you. Dinner was delicious, therefore I ate all of it. Nobody's offended by that, because that's an expression of joy. That's not pride, that's joy. If I speak this way to my wife, she knows I am not in that moment proclaiming my perfection and the glory of my performance. I am simply stating that I took great pleasure in doing something that was good and that I loved to do. That is what the psalmist is saying here. That's how you need to read it. That's how you need to hear it. God has promised to write His law on our hearts, not just in our heads where we can know it, but on our hearts where we can love it. So that we can say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law, because when I live by it, I know my life is richer and better and full of gladness because these are the ways you've appointed. They're good. And man, when I look back on the total wreckage in my life that I have caused by forsaking your ways and your words, what can I say except, oh, how I love your law? Right? And you can say, I keep it. I keep it. And again, what you're saying is, isn't that great that I get to keep it? You're not saying I'm perfectly doing it all the time, but you're saying this is my joy, so of course I do it. The word-shaped heart confesses God's point of view and delights in it. One of the uh, songs that we've been learning to sing on Wednesday night, so um, in addition to 134 and a couple of other psalms, we've also been kind of dabbling in, uh, in sea shanty tunes, which have been great fun. One of the sea shanties we've played with is called To the Word, and the repeated refrain is To the Word, To the Word We Go. It's, it's from Isaiah chapter 8, and Isaiah has all these alternatives to God's word that he puts before the people, right? And he basically says you, you can stumble and fall, you can become impatient, you can refuse to see God's blessing and instead complain about every bit of strife and confusion. You can go to the wizards that chirp, that is the, the God-haters who will tell you what you want to hear. You can hunger and thirst and die unheard. You can languish in trouble and dark or to the word, to the word we go to the testimony, to the law, to the word. This is the very invitation that we are given in Psalm 119. What we find in Psalm 119 is a heart saturated by God's word, and what that means is that the psalmist knows how to talk. He knows how to sing. And that should instruct us. So let me ask you, have you ever fled to God's word? Have you ever opened up your Bible or opened up the Bible on a a phone app? in a moment of panic or fear, while you're sitting in a hospital room, at the scene of the accident, when the bills are piling up, and the latest, after the latest fight with your spouse, and you feel like you're really getting nowhere after yet another misunderstanding. God is kind to meet you in those moments. He is. But at the same time, He means for you 
and for me and for us to be a people saturated by His Word and that saturation, if you're okay with that metaphor, is to happen during peacetime. Here's what I mean. Learning God's Word, disciplining ourselves in it and reading it and delighting in it happens during peacetime. So that when the war comes, when the difficulty comes, when the hurt comes, when the affliction comes, you know how to fight. You know how to sing. And if necessary, you know how to die. As one theologian has observed, affliction is like the wintertime. You don't fill up your storehouses in the winter. You go to your storehouses in the winter. You fill up your storehouses before the winter when the sun is shining. So that when you're in the middle of the night with a sick child, you can go to the storehouse. When you're in the middle of financial turmoil, you can go to the storehouse. When you're being lied about, or consumed by your anger and bitterness, or when you're sitting in the hospital. For what it's worth, that's not when you want to be opening the Word for the first time in six months. right? God, now, God is gracious. He will meet you during those times in spite of that. But you, but you don't want to be. And so this is, this is a call during peacetime to the Word, to the Word we go. I once heard a preacher say, if you want to hear from God, read your Bible. If you want to hear God's voice audibly, read it out loud. <laughs> and that's a bit cheeky, but I have found it truly helpful. Because if you've, if you've been in God's Word, this is, this is God's kindness. If you've been in God's Word, what you will often find is that verse that you read on Tuesday that didn't seem to be particularly meaningful then will be terribly meaningful, fitting like a glove onto your hand when you have to face Thursday's trials. So you don't know what He means to use it for, but you're storing it up because He is good and He does good and His Word endures forever. In the name of Jesus, Amen.